Hello friends, my guest today is going to be mogul skier Hannah Kearney. Hannah is one of the greatest winter athletes of all time. She was a three-time Olympian. 2010 she was the Olympic gold medalist. In 2014 she was the Olympic bronze medalist. She also was a six-time world champion, three-time U.S. national champion. She had 71 World Cup podiums, which is a record, and a record 46 World Cup wins, along with winning 13 straight World Cups. Hannah had a dominating career and is arguably the greatest skier of all time. For all the accolades on the hill, Hannah is an even better person off the hill. She has her CPT as an ambassador for the Youth Olympics and a FIS athlete representative. She helps guide athletes with her strength and conditioning programming and continues to give back to the sport that she loved and dominated. For all of Hannah's success, there were certainly several hardships along the way, and I hope you enjoy Hannah's journey of success so far. How are we doing, Hannah? Very well. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time, especially with everything that's going on. You, Mike, and Finn, you guys are all staying healthy and not too uh, stir-crazy at the moment. No, it's very nice that the sun has come out and we can get outside. Yeah. Good. Perfect. So uh, for those out there that don't really know, Hannah Kearney is one of the greatest skiers of all time, uh, in my opinion. Just a laundry list of accomplishments. Uh, you know, 71 World Cup podiums, which is a record, 46 uh, wins, also a record, 2010 Olympic gold medalist, 2014 Olympic bronze medalist, uh, another Olympics in 2006, 13 straight World Cup wins. I mean, really just a, a legendary career that you had on the, on the hill. It's pretty uh, incredible. And now uh, that's kind of grown and doing some physical therapy, some athletic training and stuff like that. I've actually, uh, today, I did one of your, one of your workouts you had posted uh, on social media, Hannah Curtin's Flat Stanley, which is very uh, sharp, sharp name. I, I like it. And uh, yeah, it was a good, uh, I did your um, Corliss Cardio, I think oh, it was. Yeah. So yeah, that no, was a great workout, uh, but thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. And let's kind of just, just go into what, what, where does that drive, you know, you come from small town in uh, Norwich, Vermont, where, where did that drive kind of start, start out for you? I think I was born competitive. Um, it's like hard to prove that, but I've definitely always innately had this, like, uh, let's see, an inability to relax, I guess, the type A personality that I've had all along. And as far as harnessing it for good, I think that, thank goodness I found sport. Otherwise... I would have been just like probably an angry, stubborn child, but having sport gave me an outlet for um, that competitiveness. Um, obviously, sports are inherently competitive, and um, I took to that right away. So even sports I didn't necessarily love, I just liked the competitive atmosphere. And then I got lucky enough to find freestyle skiing, and it was a sport I loved and an outlet for my competitiveness, so it was a perfect fit. So how did you find your way into skiing? So I learned how to ski when I was like two years old, which is a common story. We talk to Olympic skiers. They learn how to ski before they can remember. It's all um, what their parents uh, told them. So I've seen the home videos and I was really, really young. My parents had a horse in the backyard with a really big head. So they put my body inside of her horse halter and just four ski harnesses, I guess, and just like pushed me down the hill. And I loved it. I loved the feeling of the wind in my face. I wouldn't wear my mittens. I'd let them like hang on the string that went ran through my jacket, wouldn't wear goggles. I just like to go straight down the mountain. However, once I got a little better and I was unleashed, I was drawn to just like the bumps that formed on the side of the trail. 
Um, so this, we didn't even know that freestyle skiing was a sport. I just liked cutting through the trees and going up and down the bumps. And then when I was in first grade, um, there was an after-school ski program offered from 2 to 4 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon, the local ski hill called the Dartmouth Skiway, a really small area affiliated with the college. And uh, it was sort of the options were learn how to ski. And at this point, I'm seven years old probably, so I already knew how to ski. Okay. Freestyle and racing. And because of my mom's background as a gymnastics instructor and then my own interest in the, the obstacles that I described, I tried freestyle skiing and was hooked right away. F fell, uh, fell in love with it. Loved it. And that was back when freestyle skiing was ballet skiing, aerial skiing, and mogul skiing. I did it all. And by all, I mostly mean ballet skiing because there were not a lot of moguls at the Diamond Skiway. But it was a great way to, you know, you can practice axles and spins um, endlessly for two hours uh, without much terrain. So that's how, that was how I got my start in the sport. So how did you... Um start when did you start competing you talk about some of that competitive drive was it early uh, was it nine ten years old and where, yeah, where did you start skiing out of i think it was about that age i know that i watched a competition um a whole year before i ever competed i went to waterville valley and watched a uh, uh, eastern qualifying series b meet and i think i was probably eight my birthday's in the winter so i was either eight or nine and i went watched the whole competition i was like oh maybe i'll do aerials the next day and i just didn't feel ready and my parents did not push me. They brought me over just to watch what it was like and see what the other kids um, were doing. And the following year, I did my first competition at Waterville Valley, um, a ski down True Grit for my first mogul competition, which is pretty mean course back east for a nine-year-old kid. So yeah, I think I was nine years old, I believe, my first competition. Awesome. So out, out at uh, out at Waterville, and what did you what you think? What was that uh, athletic experience, that competitive experience like for you? It was pretty good. The mogul skiing, I was in over my head. The True Grid, as I mentioned, just the name. Obviously, it was a like pretty intense course. Um, but I got second, I think even overall, it, maybe even my age group, second in upright aerials. Again, doing a spread eagle with no goggles on um, <laughs> off, the, off Phil's Hill. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, second's not going to cut it. I want to win. And I'm like, let's sign up for the next weekend. I don't Mount Snow, who knows where it was. I want, let's, let's go. Let's get this. So for me, it's always been, yes, it's this competitiveness of like inherently wanting to do better, but it was, uh, or get a better result. But ultimately, it was just that I wanted to improve. So I was like, okay, I got this place, or I got this score, or I had this result. How can I make myself do better? How can I ski better? How can I get a better result? And that has kind of, that's kind of what drove me for the rest of my career. Right. So you kind of start to get a, a taste of a little bit of success. You kind of make your way. Uh, you're one of the young up-and-comers. You make your way onto the U.S. ski team. Um, and how, how does that dynamic change for you as you start to make some of those bigger jumps uh, as a competitor? Absolutely. It's a, making the ski team is always, um, for any ski athlete, it's like such a huge step. Sometimes you kind of forget to plan beyond that. Like, make the U.S. ski team. Make the U.S. ski team. Um, and then you get there, like, well, what now? What do I do? It's also it also marks a dramatic um, turning point where you go from a club and the coaches that have known you since you were a little kid, your friends, your teammates, the people that you're really comfortable with, and then you get thrown into a completely different environment. And it took me a couple of years, really, to get settled in this new role as a U.S. ski team athlete. It's also the point in my life was the transition from when I was a high school student to then becoming a full time skier or a professional skier if you will so that 
I'd love, I look back at my career and I'd like love to, wish I had been successful consistently sooner. But there were like four or five years where I would win a competition, get last place. And I was sort of all over the place. But I was young and sometimes it takes uh, those experiences to just figure out how to be the best athlete that you can be. So what was, what was that transition like? Because it sounds like it was a little bit bumpy. You know, you kind of hit a big result and then maybe, you know, you take a couple steps back. What, what was that transition for you? Yeah, it was, so I made the ski team at the end of my sophomore year of high school. And so I had two, well, basically another year and a half of trying to balance school. Um, I stayed in public school throughout um, my whole career. Um, and I was also playing soccer and running track for my school. And then my obligations with the ski team and the opportunities to compete on the World Cup tour um, were challenging. I had to make a couple of difficult decisions, like forfeiting World Cup starts, which now people would rarely do that. But I had a, I forfeited World Cup starts so that um, I could finish um, school well, I guess. I probably could have missed a lot of school and maybe my grades would have slipped, but it was important to me to finish school and graduate um, top of my class and feel like I'd given my best. And I knew that, um, I was in it for the long run. So that, that was, but that was, it's easy now to say like, that was the right decision, but that was a hard decision at the time. And then it was also back when the ski team was a little bit more spread out. They've always been based in Park City, but, um, not all the coaches were when I was uh, first on the team. And so I stayed back East, but the coaches were in Colorado, mostly some in Utah and the team dynamic. I was only, as I said, I was only 16. It just wasn't a perfect um, environment. And as we all know, skiing's not a team sport, but you're, you have teammates. So that's always an interesting dynamic too. Yeah. That's a, that's a big decision for, for a lot of people out there that don't know. I mean, most winter athletes, um, when they have the opportunity, they will usually go to uh, out here in park city. They call it the winter school and all these different kind of specialized schools to allow you to train and compete. So to kind of forfeit some of that. Um, I think it, probably helped you in a lot of different regards. I mean, I know it helped me going to like a normal, you get that kind of real high school feel, not like you're a competitive athlete the whole time and you got to be on the hill and it's this, this cut and dry. You kind of get a little bit more uh, real world feel to it. So I think hopefully it helped you in the, in the long run, you think? We're still, still waiting to, waiting to find out, but I think so. It also helps you like time management skills and balance. It made me more grateful for the opportunity to ski. When I had that opportunity, I would take time, there'd be months where I didn't, wasn't on my skis. Uh, I was playing soccer or just studying, um, training, of course, always in some way, you can always find ways to improve, but I wasn't necessarily with my teammates, um, on the slopes. And I think it, it gave me longevity in my career. I didn't burn out, but again, there's always that balance. Like maybe I could have been a little more consistently successful sooner if I hadn't, but you know, I have no regrets about that. So, so what would you say uh, changed? Like as you start to grow, you start to mature a little bit more, you start to get a little bit more of that consistency. What um, changed for you mentality or focus wise? What, what, what was the difference for you? It was a knee surgery. It was legitimately the tipping point mentally and physically in my career. So all that balancing of schoolwork and, and, and school sports, as I was talking about, I then graduated high school and you can imagine that I had a year that wasn't very, I wasn't a very strong athlete. Unfortunately, it corresponded with the 2006 Olympics where I got third to last place <laughs> as a 19 year old, but I had lost my, this, what was my normal and my structure in my training, which was playing soccer and running track. I'd lost all that. And so I was kind of, and I was also like watching my friends go to college. I was like, Ooh, I didn't take that path because I wanted to ski, but 
did I make a mistake? So I had a lot of questions in my head. I just wasn't fully, fully committed to skiing. I would have said I was at the time, but I, looking back, I wasn't. So the following season after that, um, I tore my ACL, very common mobile skiing injury, unfortunately. And <laughs> we all know and coming back from that, I t- took a step back. So I was away from the team. I was on my own in Vermont, um, had the surgery. And through the physical process of the rehabilitation, I learned a lot more about my body and how to train specifically. And I started working with trainers and realized like, it's okay to need help because you need help when you're rehabbing. And mm-hmm. I started to trust people and I saw measurable results. And that corresponds with when I started tracking my, um, my training and I just sort of became obsessed with my strength and conditioning as a part of my training. Well, skiing is a huge part of it too, but the, if you can love the training outside of the on snow portion, that's huge because you're probably spending more time doing that anyway. So the combination of all those things and then just the, I had a sport taken away from me that I'd been doing since I was two years old. So I'd never known life without it. And all of a sudden it was taken away and I was like, oh, no, I love this sport and I really want to get back. So all of those things combined, when I returned, I was stronger both physically and mentally. And yeah, I had still had some inconsistent results after that, but I was a much, much better athlete after that. So uh, go, it helps you start to appreciate it a little bit more, right? When it's kind of taken away from you? Yeah. You talk a little bit as you're going through that rehab and, uh, you know, a lot of professional athletes have to go through that. It's one of the uh, main things. You talk a little bit more about uh, starting to trust some of those trainers and stuff like that. Do you think you lacked a little bit of that and kind of trusting and allowing other people's kind of opinions to come in and, and give you some more guidance? Do you think that that helped along the way? I think having uh, people around you that are supporting you that you trust is key. And it, it's a two-way relationship. They have to trust you too. Um, and it takes me still to this day, I, I'm sort of, it takes me like years to get to know people. I don't, I'm not everyone's best friend right away. And right. so that can be tough in an environment, like say making a ski team and you have a new coach and you got to trust them instantly. That can be a challenge. Um, and through, I think I learned how to be better at communicating when there was something, advice I was being given or exercises I was told to do that I didn't believe in. I would just, I would say something about it. And then through that, I learned why these trainers were writing these exercises or, and then I learned whether I trusted them or not. And so it was like trial and error. And um, it made a big difference just being a, again, it's a team sport. So I'm sorry, it's not a team sport, it's an individual sport. So sometimes you're like, I should do this, be doing this all by myself. But I wasn't an expert in strength and conditioning or physical therapy. And so having help um, made me realize that I could be a much better athlete if I allowed these people to help me. And you have to put in the work ultimately as the athlete, but people can help you. Now, who would you say was most influential or kind of helped you the most get through that, that somewhat dark period? I always think of those, those rehab. I mean, I went through one myself and it's always a few times, right? And you're kind of, you don't have many friends. You, you find out who your friends are, right? You know, you got your family and a couple people that actually check in and really right. genuinely want to know how you're doing. Otherwise, it's just kind of you going into the pain cave of trying to get that thing back to, back to where it was. So who would you say kind of helped you, helped you get through that? I mean, can I say my dog? Or, yeah. (laughs) Talking about like taking, I think I learned during that injury to, as we said, like I became more grateful. And I also was like, all right, well, surrendering to it. Like, don't be, don't have anxiety and get frustrated that you're not skiing. Just take advantage of this time when you're not skiing and do things that you wouldn't normally do. So like I put up a Christmas tree that year because I'd never been able to do that because I was traveling. 
Um, I adopted a dog in the in the that was short run. That was a great idea because I was home every day with her. And then the next year when I left for the World Cup tour, the poor dog had to go live with my parents for a little bit. But anyway, um, she. I was, she was this nine-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback that had had three litters of puppy, and her owner was getting really old and couldn't take care of her anymore. So I welcomed her into my life, and she was an awesome, awesome dog, and she became my rehab buddy, hiking and uh, spending time outside and on the trails. Um, but the other answer to that is I worked with someone named Bill Knowles um, at iSport, which, and he specialized in knee rehabilitation. He was based in Killington, Rutland area, and I worked with him, and he... It was like a very inspirational, motivating person. Just taught me a lot about, you know, prehab too. Like exercises that I ended up doing for the rest of my career um, that help you prevent the injuries. And I didn't have another one, so it worked. How, how was he inspirational? I think uh, I trusted him. So there was like this immense amount of respect. And the energy he gave off when he was working with you, I worked with him one-on-one. It was palpable. Um, we used him just like, he was so fit himself. He was excellent at demonstrating the exercises and he did a great job of educating me as an athlete as well as to why we were doing things. And I really latched on to that. It made, it made me um, under, understand why we were doing things. And then that in turn motivated me to continue to do them throughout my career. I think sometimes athletes are not necessarily inspired by their trainers or their training if they don't understand what it's doing. Cause yeah, sometimes things are just not fun. So it's going to be easy to dismiss them unless you know what the point of doing it is and how it's going to benefit you. Sounds like he also was able to kind of help you with the communication. Like, Hey, I, I know that why this is working now. So it allows me to kind of be able to communicate when, once you're kind of back up and at it with the ski team, uh, strength and conditioning and kind of coaches and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. He was great about that. So you kind of, you, you've, focused in a little bit more you're kind of uh gathering a lot more data now how how much would you say that kind of fit fit your personality would you say it kind of created a habit for you that that really you were able to carry the rest of your career yeah i think it was something i didn't realize I me mean, and i was like math class in school but the the tracking of my exercises and watching how much weight you're able to you know increase how much weight you can push around each week keeping track of that um I think it was a perfect fit for my personality that I just didn't really know beforehand. I didn't know that I was missing it in my training. And so I latched onto that. And for the rest of my career, I was very somewhere on the shelves behind me are my notebooks from 10 years of handwritten. I, I guess I'll call them a journal, but it's really, it's the way I would journal. It's just bullet points of numbers of the number of jumps I did, the number of squats I did, how many calories I burned that day. And I just kept that for my whole career as a way to look back. Um, to know, give me confidence that I had done everything that I needed to to prepare, but also when I had issues and things weren't going well, I could look back and be like, well, what was working previously? And it just gave me something to base my decisions on, um, yeah. which gave me a lot of confidence. So the, the, the rehab and that process kind of turned me into this data-driven athlete that I hadn't necessarily been before, um, and then I, I became that for the rest of my career. So... That data, that data-driven athlete really turned you into the GOAT, like an absolute monster and a machine. And would you say, uh, you, did you use a sports psych as well? Or was it kind of just you had the confidence of looking at those numbers? You didn't need to, you had the own, your own strength there. You didn't really need to talk to a sports psych or you felt that that and really. Data, data was my sports psychologist. 
Um, which, and I think that there are a few instances I was like, I probably could have benefited from a sports site, but there, but like when something's working, let it work for you too. Um, and for me, the data served that same purpose that I think some people get from um, talking to a sports psychologist. So for me, that's what worked. Um, Cause it's one of those like, who really cares if you can squat however many hundreds of pounds? Does that like really directly translate to mobile skiing? No, but when I was in the Stargate and I had seen the numbers and the strength coach said, yep, you were the strongest athlete on the team this year. I go, good. And then the Stargate, it's not that I deserve to win, but I couldn't think of any reason why I shouldn't be able to. And that was the confidence um, that I needed, like pushes out, pushes away any doubts. And that all came from data indirectly. Of course, sure. I'm not like yeah. I'm staring at a post-it note that says you are this strong at the top. I mean, it's just, it's just like in, I'm embodying um, the data that I produced and that can be a lot of confidence. Right. It's kind of refreshing to hear because I, I feel like, a lot more and more now uh, athletes are relying more and more on sports psychs. And I'm not saying they're bad. I mean, I definitely would talk to one when I was having issues and stuff like that. But I feel like to be able to kind of create something for yourself that builds your own confidence and is able to keep it going because you know, hard, confidence is the hardest thing to gain and it can be the easiest thing to lose. Right. Totally. Totally. And if you find a way that something that, you know, helps gives you confidence, definitely stick with that. And the good thing about using yourself or the own, the data that you're producing versus sports psych is you're always with yourself. Sports psych might be thousands of miles away. And if you rely on them too heavily, that can always be an issue, but I can't speak too much to that because it just worked for me. So it was a very personal um, experience. So you talk back, uh, just go back a little, or going back a little bit to 2006, you had your first Olympic experience. You're a little bit young, didn't quite get the result that you wanted, obviously. And then you kind of have that injury. How much uh, did that help your career going forward? Obviously, you talk about that tipping point, but being able to get that Olympic experience, did that make it that much easier when 2010 came around? Absolutely. Because, it, I mean, the third to last kit doesn't get much worse than that. So I came into 2010 thinking, okay, well, it's not going to be worse than that. I also survived that. That sounds ridiculous. You don't go to the Olympics and die. That's not an actual feasible hopefully, uh, result. But it was that I had failed and my parents still loved me. My coaches still coached me. My town was still proud of me. Like, it was okay. And even though I was only 19 years old, I put that pressure on myself. I was like, well, my country expects me to win a medal. I have to win a medal. Um, I had won competitions of that same level, if you're talking about World Cups. So I, I kind of just assumed I could win, and that was not – um, I treated it, so, so for that reason, I treated it just like a regular competition, thinking like if I just walk in there, like it's a regular competition, and because I've won those, no problem. But the Olympics is not any other competition. There's a lot more attention on you, just from months of questions in advance of the games to, of course, the media attention while you're there. And the notes that you're getting from family and friends that you haven't even thought about in years, they're trying to be helpful, but it puts more pressure on you. And so all of those things kind of exploded on me at the 2006 Olympics and I did terribly. So four years later, I just did everything the opposite. And I had that confidence, like it's going to be fine no matter what. Might as well try to make it more enjoyable and have a different result, but it will be okay. And that took some of the pressure off for sure. So you're in the starting gate, 2010 Olympic run for the finals. What is kind of your pregame prayer or what are you thinking about before you're going through, you're doing your warm up, you're in that starting gate, you're looking down, mom and dad, whole family's there. What's, what's the thought process? Is the thought process, I've done 
X amount of squats. I've done X amount of this kind of going back to that data and relying on that kind of confidence builder you, you had built or this is it is, more? This is why the Olympics are different. I just like got goosebumps and it's like 65 degrees outside because the Olympics are so cool. Um, I remember it somewhat as a dream. This is where I said I'm a data-driven athlete, but there's a time for that and there's a time when you can put that aside. In that moment, in that start gate, it was a night event. It was raining sideways. The banners were flapping in the wind. Scott Rawls, my coach, was standing over me with an umbrella that was almost turning inside out because it was so windy. I'm like, huh. It's not really how you visualize your Olympic moment for glory. Um, all I said right then was, this is it. This is it. This is it. Like now, right? You wait four years and then bam, it's there. And you only have the next 25 seconds to perform and make it happen. So that's all I said. And I also think in my head to the Jen Heil, who was in, currently sitting in first place. She had just finished her run. She was Canadian. We're on Canadian soil. And I was the only one left. I said, sorry, it's my turn. And then I pushed into the, into the course. And then I basically blacked out until I crossed the finish line. <laughs> but, but I am going to go back to, to something you said, which was there was data involved in there. It was just earlier in the day. And yeah. my trainer, the ski team's trainer, Alex Moore, an amazing guy, an Australian trainer, is unfortunately no longer with the ski team. Um, I give him a lot of credit for my success. He made me a much better athlete. And he kept us happy and uh, in good spirits at the Olympics too. He handed me a card that morning of our event um, that had a list of the data that I had produced that whole year leading up to the Olympics. I think since May until now, it's February. And it said exactly like you just said. It said, you've done 670 squats. You've moved this much weight. You've done 1,000 water ramp jumps. You've, you've spent this many hours at, with your heart rate at this certain level. And I found it really inspirational. And he just said, like, you're ready. And I was like, yes gosh darn it, I am ready. I assumed that all of my teammates had gotten the exact same card. I find it wasn't until like maybe two years ago, so we're now a long time in, away from that Olympic, I found out those, their cards said completely different things. They said like, I love you and support you. That would not have inspired me. But it, so that's why he was good at his job. He gave me a card with numbers on it, and he gave my teammates cards with fuzzy support words inside that would not have resonated with me. So that was, uh, that's why I give him credit for being such a great trainer, but that's why that was in my mind. But at the time that it's time to go, that was all behind me and it was just time to perform. Now you, you finished that event, uh, career achievement, career goal. What is, is that moment like? Because not many people uh, are able to, let alone make an Olympic team, finally have that gold medal to wear around your neck. And you hear, you do the medal ceremonies, you hear that, uh, Amer our anthem. It's just what, if you can describe it. <laughs> well, there were two kind of like distinct, separate moments of that Olympics of satisfaction and emotion. So the first one was crossing the finish line. And I think my fist just started going, like, I couldn't contain my energy. I didn't know the score. It didn't matter. It was literally just redemption. Because four years before, I'd gotten third last place and performed terribly. So all in that moment, all that mattered was that I had skied the run that I intended to in that one day that I planned for. And that's, uh, like, some of that's just a lot of luck, right? <laughs> so it was just felt fantastic. In that moment, it just feels sort of like a regular competition. It feels extra exciting, but a regular competition. 24 hours later, when the medal ceremonies happens, it's a whole different ball game. I was in the 
um, stadium where they give out the medals because they make it a big deal and hand out all the medals from the day before or from that day at one time. So there were like 15,000 or 20,000 people in the stadium because there's a concert afterwards that weren't just there to see me. Um, they made the announcement that Canada had just won its first gold medal, which was Alex Bilodeau in men's moguls while I was receiving my award. And I was backstage at this point in the green room and hearing the stadium erupt with that news, it was actually shaking. So that was a really cool moment. And then about 10 minutes later, I'm out on that um, stage with these other competitors who I would have done anything to beat up um, the moments before. And it all of a sudden instead felt like, okay, no matter what, we've all worked so hard to get here. It's a pretty cool moment to be sharing with people you've trained and competed with for a long time. And then the first note of the national anthem and I lost it. I mean, I, and I kept trying to say, like, try to remember this, try to remember this. And it just went so quickly. And you can't help but feel, like, a gratitude for everyone who helped you get there. And it was just a very special moment that went way too quickly. Right. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. It's a fantastic USA. <laughs> yeah. First, first USA medal of the Games. That was cool, too. <laughs> so what kind of ride does that, that carry you through for, for the rest of the, the season and kind of springboard, like, you know, you kind of, you hit this, this apex, right? And it's in the middle of the season. You still have to, to finish your year out. And how, how does that, how does that kind of finish for you? Yeah, that, that, the rest of that season was a bit of a, not a struggle, but it was a bit of a roller coaster because I think there, our event is so early in the Olympic Games. It was on the first day, um, which is why I won the first medal <laughs> with the scheduling, um, that we have like almost a month until maybe even more than a month until we compete again. So I think if I look at my journals, I think I took like five days completely off, just went to other events, did media stuff. And then I started training because like, what else was I going to do? I started going on runs again and lifting weights. I skipped the next competition, which was in Japan. I just went home. I went home to see my family, to see friends. Um, I knew I was going to have years. Well, I thought at least to continue right. to compete. So I got to go home and just have some really cool, experiences my hometown had a parade I got to speak in my elementary school little things like that that just were um special and then I think we had four or five more competitions and I won some I lost some I, I lost the globe that year because I hadn't gone to Japan to compete and at that moment I was like oh, I should have done that but in retrospect it was nice to have um some time away too and then I think come next season refocus and you're like okay what's next and then you move on, but definitely a month or two of just being a little bit distracted by all of the um, extra excitement that comes along with the Olympic Games. So what what was next? Um, at, so the next season, like the following seasons. Oh, like where, where do you set your yeah. your eyes kind of for? Because this is kind of the creation. You go on to 2011 through 2015, win all those globes. Uh, yeah. You win the 46, uh, 46 wins, 13 straight World Cup wins. I mean, you're just unstoppable. How does, where, where, where did that kind of come from? You knew, you knew training focus wise that you were ready to kind of go on a run or? How, yeah. How so that was a process. There was definitely a moment I was like, okay, do I retire? Like, okay, I won a gold medal. Like, should I just hang it up now? That was certainly an option, but I was only 23. And I was like, uh, no, I think I'm, I think I've got physically more in me. Plus, I maybe a month later saw the footage of my run, like from the judge's perspective, and I was like, oh, my backflip was that was not straight, that was crooked. Okay, so I got to keep competing. 
Um, and so from that point forward, I think I became, maybe because I won a gold medal and achieved that goal, I was able to just like focus less on the results and because I had that and focus more on just me as an athlete and how I was going to get better. Because um, what gets better than a gold medal? So I was like, well, the only thing I can do is um, make myself better. And so I took that back and was like, how do I fix it? And so then I just started tackling that, breaking it down. Okay, I fixed it on the trampoline. Okay, I work with these coaches. Okay, I'm gonna need, I need to do this many jumps on the water ramps every year to fix that. So I took my skiing and just kind of broke it down more from that point and tried to make my weaknesses less of a weakness or, you know, maybe not, maybe they're never a strength, but make them less of a weakness so I could become more consistent. Also, the thing about winning a gold medal is it's one day. It's amazing, but it's one day. And I was like, that's not good enough. I want to be good every day. And so how do I do that? I have to make it so that like a medium run can still be someone's best run. I have to make it so that, and I have to increase the chances that I'll ski my best run more of the time. And that, so that's when I just tried to get myself as strong as possible and make my weaknesses less of a weakness. So what would you say are uh, some, some of those unique uh, qualities that kind of you created that, that uh, have helped make you successful? Whether they're unique or not is always hard to know. Maybe it's like a combination, right? We're all like our DNA print is just a little bit different. And I think my combination of being a little bit lucky, um, being incredibly goal-oriented, and um, also being self-motivated, being able to really push my not, myself and not rely on anything external, um, those combinations have helped me be successful in mobile skiing. Any, if I'm talking about success, I'm just only talking about mobile skiing because whether I'm successful in life is a whole other question. So for, for sport, those characteristics help make me successful. So what, what were um, some, of those, some of those daily habits you kind of created that really, was it as simply as, as just journaling or what, what were kind of some of those habits? Yeah, I mean, still looking around like lists, like I can't not make lists. Um, because you've probably been able to tell that from, from our talk and from what I've said, don't write like a lot of emotional things anywhere. It's just tasks. So I was able to set goals. Okay. Win a gold medal in four years. All right. What do I have to do in the next two years to do that? What do I have to do next month to do that? What can I do in the next five minutes to help me achieve that? And I would just break down tasks. Um, so planning, I guess if you were like generally, yeah. So planning and being able to like backtrack goals was something um, that I was good at. And then surrounding myself with people that were really, that believed in me was, that's not like something you do on a day. Well, it is, a, it's a choice on a daily basis. Surrounding yourself with people that um, are gonna help you achieve those same goals um, is, was also really helpful in my career. It sounds very detailed. <laughs> yeah, yes, but being very detailed oriented. Yeah, that's probably blessing and a curse, I guess. Right. <laughs> so now what, like what would happen on a day, say, where you don't reach all of your goals or you don't hit all the things that you, all your bullet points and all your checks, right? What happens? Yeah. How much does that discourage you or how much does that kind of set you back? Because it's hard to imagine that every single day you were able to check everything off unless yeah. it's something as simple as wake up, go to bed. I think you can be able to check those off every day. No, I guess... I don't think I've ever, maybe in like three times in my life, I've checked everything off in a, in a daily list. So they're designed so that some things can carry over to the next day. And right. I always, 
try to prioritize them. So the number, the first thing on the list is the most important thing. So you do it first, you put your energy into it. And even if you don't fully accomplish something, little steps towards um, achieving it are helpful. So it isn't, lists don't work for people if like you just see something on the list and it just like nags you and sticks in the back of your mind, that's, then that's not maybe the right strategy for you. But for me, I find them very motivating. And I also get immense satisfaction out of her accomplishing whatever I set on my list and it helps build again confidence that I can do anything that I decide it's very much about feel like empowering I guess in that if someone else tells me to do it I'm far less motivated if I have decided that is what I should be doing that is the best thing for my career that is the best thing for me as a person then I have a lot more motivation to achieve that so going through everything, you know, how much would you say that perseverance has kind of helped you play a role in being successful? Uh, a large, I don't know, percentage-wise, but it's definitely important. Yeah. Um, it, unless you're the luckiest person alive, then you don't need perseverance. It just all works out. But inevitably, there are going to be setbacks. I also, though, think that sometimes perseverance, in my mind, I, I think of perseverance as like just – like go, 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 keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And that's not necessarily the best advice or the best mindset. I think perseverance can be strategic. So if something's not working, say, well, ask yourself why. Um, and then maybe it's that you just need to try it a few more times, but you need to be learning from the failures. Otherwise perseverance is just insanity. It's just doing something over and over and over again. Oh yeah, you're persevering, but you're not succeeding. It's only perseverance if you inevitably, if you end up succeeding in the long run and so I think there has to be these like moments where you pivot you change so that's why that list it's not maybe it is written in pen but that's why there's a new list the next day maybe something gets removed from that list because that's no longer helping you accomplish your goals so learning from the failures is really important part of success so what what are some of the failures that that you've had to learn from along your career path because I mean you've had such incredible heights but uh, no, and, and no one really likes to talk about uh, some of the lows, but they definitely help um, you propel to the top, right? To be the best. Yep. I mean, I guess in the context of our conversation, the most obvious one would be um, my 2006 Olympic experience, which was third to last when I thought I should have been winning. That was certainly a failure. That's what it felt like um, to me at the time. And how I learned from that was that it shifted my mindset in that four years later, I legitimately did everything the exact opposite of what I did. I fully embraced that it was the Olympics. I packed only red, white, and blue clothing. Well, maybe not only. I packed a ton of red, white, and blue clothing. Yeah. I decided I was going to walk in the opening ceremonies, even though four years before I had said no because I need to be fresh for my event. I um, got along much better with my teammates four years later. And so I just did everything differently because I figured – if they, even, then if that didn't work, then I could find out, find something in the middle and try that. But I was going to do everything the opposite because I didn't wasn't going there to get third to last place again. Absolutely. So going into 2014, you're on this big run. Um, what is the what is the thought process kind of going into that that last Olympics? Is it another gold gold or bust? Yeah, absolutely. It was. I'm going to be the first freestyle athlete to win two gold medals back to back. Um, and there I failed again at that. However, I now can look at that as I ended up with a bronze medal with a poor performance on just objectively, not a good performance, um, from me. I made a huge bobble in the landing and to be able to win a bronze medal on a bad day now is something I'm really grateful for and pretty proud of. 
because I did not fall. I pulled it back together and I finished that gosh darn run. Um, but it took me a really long time to feel that way and it still yanks at my heartstrings because it was, I went in there to win another gold medal and I, not that I deserved it, but I did everything I could and I still can't figure out what went wrong. And in, in a sport that involves so many factors that you sometimes, it just, things just happen. So how has that helped you translate towards uh, success like later on in life so far? Because I mean, there's been so much you've been able to pull out of your athletic career. Uh, some of those failures, like how, how, how has it helped you grow? Well, I think the perseverance we were talking about, if you're an athlete who's able to persevere, I think those things directly translate to life. So the, the same um, advice I would give to an athlete would be, hopefully the advice I can take to myself is learn. So if something's not working, if you're not happy in your current life, or if I'm not successful as a trainer, do something differently. So learning from that. And I think the other thing about my athletic career that I'm hoping um, translates uh, a few things. Goal setting is a, because that I learned that through athletics, that will stick with me for the rest of my life. And I think that like there are studies that show that that is a productive way to be uh, more successful. Whatever you choose to do is setting goals. So that's um, ingrained in me. But also remembering that I sort of it was a, I was on the U.S. team for 13 years. Not every day was successful. Not and I also didn't love it every single day. There were hard times. There were years where I questioned whether I should even continue skiing when I was younger, if I had made the right decision. And so knowing that, and that it ended up being, you know, some of the highlights of my life going, my lives, no, my life, going to the Olympics, and it became my career and my passion. But it wasn't necessarily that right from the beginning, is that, so knowing that now that I can, I can find something else that I'm going to love and hopefully be good at. I don't know if I'm going to win an Olympic gold medal or anything else. I think that those days might be behind me, but hopefully I can be successful at something outside of skiing. Right. Now, what would you, uh, for, for people out there, kind of not only in athletics, but uh, in general, if they're going through their daily lives, they're, they're struggling or they have doubts and fears as they're kind of navigating their way, what, what advice would you, would you give them or what approach would you say that um, has been most useful to you? Uh, is it simply writing down a list or something like that? Or what, what, what kind of advice would you have for them? I think fear gets a bad rap for good reason, but that it can actually be okay as long as it doesn't paralyze you. So listening to the fear, like, and actually not talking to it, that might sound a little cheesy, but why, like, why am I afraid right now? Is it rational or is it something society has put on me? Is it something, is it some pressure coming from my family? Is it, is it my own uh, fear of failure? And if it's a fear of failure, Imagining the worst case scenario, this is probably the exact opposite of what a sports psychologist would say. I, I say go ahead and imagine the worst possible outcome and then work your way back from that. Okay, if that's the absolute worst thing that can happen, well, then what are the more likely things that are going to happen? And just deciding if your fears are actually reasonable, I think, would help me manage them, but I like to rationalize through stuff. So that would help me. Um, and then I also think sometimes the paralysis part, which fear does with, there's so many reasons not to do things not to take action, not to do something entrepreneurial, not to try that new sport, not to try that new trick, not to, there's so many reasons not to do stuff. Um, but I think sometimes taking action, just doing something um, instead of just thinking, so getting out of your head, just doing it. Um, and I don't know what that might be, you know, going to the, getting the business license or um, doing the trick on the trampoline first or, you know, whatever it may be, taking action then gives you something else 
to uh, build off of instead of just sitting there with your fears, which is depressing and <laughs> <laughs> definitely depressing. I like the, uh, I, I haven't heard that before. I really like that. Listen, actually take a second, uh, listen to the fear, allow yeah. it to become a little bit more present. I feel like most people, they hear that uh, fear word and they block it out, try to get it out of, yeah. out of their head. So I think that's really uh, an interesting take. I like that a lot. And then to be able to take some, take some action. So you've been able to uh, kind of give back to the sport. You know, you're an athlete representative for FIST now, kind of after you've been done. Uh, you went to, you finished at Dartmouth, right? I fin I, Dartmouth, I transferred once I retired. And, uh, and when I moved out to Utah, I graduated from Westminster, actually. Okay. You got your uh, CPT and you're doing some athletic training now. How, how, how are you enjoying that? It's actually really fun because the gym gave me so much of my confidence and so much of my joy, I guess, from the sport. I think one of the tricks to my success was that I loved the training. And some, you know, like we all love to compete. Well, maybe not everyone loves to compete, but it's easy to want to win and want to compete, but you have to want to train really hard to get there too, or it certainly helps if you can enjoy that. And so now with my athletes, I'm trying to make training fun for them. Like, yes, it's going to be painful and hard sometimes, but if it can be creative, um, and if they understand why we're doing certain exercises, I try to educate them to pass along any little bit of that that might stick with them and increase the chances that they continue to work hard in the gym and therefore increase their chances of being a better athlete down the road. So I'm enjoying it. I don't know if it's my, you know, life's, my next life's passion, if I'm going to continue to do that. But for right now, I really like it. And it gives me an excuse to try to stay fit, at least, because otherwise <laughs> it's going to be all down. It's hard going from being a professional athlete to being a professional home cook. <laughs> so looking, going back, like looking on your career, who would you say helped, helped the most? Kind of, if there's one person or it doesn't have to be one, you know, if there's a couple people that really helped, uh, helped create the success that, that you had. I mean, cheesy and totally true. My mom and dad, they taught me how to ski. They, there are pictures of that. My dad would set up lights in our backyard and build this little, little jump. He used hockey sticks to mark the outsides of it. And we would just do, my brother and I would go off this jump um, in the backyard. They sacrificed a lot to drive me to the ski area and my brother to the hockey arena. And then we both went on to be semi-professional athletes. So I think, and they made sacrifices. Financially skiing is one of the most expensive sports out there and they gave everything they could. And when they couldn't, they gave me opportunities to apply for grants. They gave me all the support I needed and they weren't pushy. And I think that is something I'm working as a trainer. Sometimes I see a little bit of the, the motivation for these kids coming from their parents. And that isn't maybe a best formula for long-term success. Intentions, I think, are always there. Parents want the best for their kids, but it has to ultimately, the passion and the drive has to come from the child themselves. And my parents were really good about letting me, giving me the power to make the decisions about whether I entered a competition, whether I signed up for soccer again next year, and whether I entered a competition at all in the first place. Um, and so their support was invaluable and made me the athlete that I am now, was. That's awesome. Now, were they both competitive as well? Like, was your mom super competitive or, or your dad? Or were they just like, we don't know where, where, where does that drive come from? <laughs> they, they are both really competitive, but in their own ways. My dad was a football player um, in college and then went to grad school at McGill where, um, in Canada where he met my mother. And my mom was just like an all-around athlete, did every sport possible. Um, but neither of them were ever, they were neither of them were very good skiers when they, when they met. 
Um, but then when they moved to Vermont, what else you can do in the winter? So they taught um, my brother and I to ski. And uh, so, yeah, so they're competitive, but not in the same way that I turned out. Would you say that they helped you see it through, like not do anything kind of half-ass, like go through, put in maximum effort. If you're going to be doing your school, you might as well do it to the best of your ability. If you're going to go in and you're going to pursue skiing, we're going to, you better be doing it to the best of your ability. Um, I, not really. I think that I did that and they were like, geez, you're nine years old. Take it easy. <laughs> you know, when I was a senior in high school, I'm like, they're like, you don't need to get all that. Like, Take it. So I don't, they, I think wanted me to try my hardest, but I don't think there was ever a question that I was not going to. And so if anything, I think they're like, you just need to relax a little bit. I'm sure as parents, you want, like, I was a child at one point, even though it's hard to remember, they, you want your child to be having fun. And I think sometimes I took everything, life too seriously, but I, that's my personality. So. <laughs> that's good. It's good to know the, uh, the personality for sure. Yeah. So now uh, moving forward, people can kind of, uh, if they want to follow along social media or they want to be able to reach out to do some physical training and stuff like that, they can find you at uh, Hannah Kearney's Flat Stanley. Yep, that is correct. I'm Instagramming on uh, quarantine time. I'm posting lots of workouts and I've saved them there. So they'll just be there. And I'd love to hear from people if anyone's actually doing them. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, it's just me being weird in my basement filming workouts that no one's doing. Um, like I said, I did one today, so right. I definitely appreciate it. Avatol's done a few, so we're definitely uh, we're, we're keeping track. So okay, and then for all the FIS app mogul skiers out there, you gotta uh, answer all my emails about questions. I'm trying my best to represent you at the FIS level um, with all our council meetings and subcommittee meetings. There's all sorts of just boring, mind-numbing meetings, but I am gonna sit through those and do my best to represent your opinions but only if you get back to me on those surveys. So um, let me know what I can do better. And that same way you can reach out to me on social media. Um, it's probably the best way to get in touch. Awesome. One, uh, one more thing I wanted to ask. Any books you recommend that you've just been reading recently, you find super interesting? I've been trying while we've been going through quarantine and everything else. I'm trying to, trying to catch up uh, on sharp, sharp in the brain and try to get as many books in. So do you have any, any that you think that I would uh, enjoy? Yeah. Well, actually, I have no idea if you Well, I'm reading a book about the uh, 96 Atlanta bombing, which is really, really interesting. It's more about how the media turned a suspect into a, a victim anyway. But that, so I do recommend that book. But The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up is a perfect book to read right now. It's like you can read it in a day, and then it's going to make you want to resort your entire life, and we all have the time to do that right now. You can do that in your own house and just cleanse your life for good. So those, those are my recommendations for now. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time, Hannah. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bobby. All right. Bye, everybody. We'll see you later. See ya. Hope you enjoyed this episode, folks. Thanks a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. This is your host, Bobby Carroll, signing off.